Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and in this series, we'll be taking you through the past, present, and future of medical technology. This episode is the second of three devoted to YJBM's September 2018 issue on medical technology, which you can find on YJBM's website or PubMed. I am your co-host, Amelia Hallworth, a second-year graduate student in the microbiology program here at Yale. And I am your co-host, John Ventura, a sixth-year student in the microbiology program. And we're honored to have joining us today Dr. Angelica Gonzalez, the Donna L. Dubinsky Associate Professor of Medical Biomedical Engineering here at Yale University, to talk about some of the innovative medical technologies her lab is currently developing. Dr. Gonzalez, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so to begin, perhaps you could uh, introduce yourself a little bit and tell us how you became interested in biomedical engineering and developing new medical technologies. Oh. Um, I uh, came to Yale in about uh, 2007, 2008 as a research associate <clears throat> to um, start to investigate uh, questions about vascular biology. But even before that, my interest in general science and engineering uh, probably emerged um, from an understanding of irrigational engineering. My grandfather was a farmer and a a manager of the irrigation systems in a town outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. And if you know anything about Las Vegas, it's a desert. It has lots of good (laughs) gambling and a lot of water fountains in the Strip. It's a city that's not supposed to be there, right? (laughs) Exactly. So it's a city in the middle of the desert. And in order to have any agriculture, um, you had to have good irrigational systems. And so I learned early on uh, as a child that uh, I did not like to be in the sweltering heat in the summer, manually and physically out checking the water levels. So I thought, uh, if I ever go to college, I'm going to get an irrigational degree and learn how to automate uh, these systems. <laughs> yeah. Really? I was a lazy kid. <laughs> I can't tell you. That was, the, that was the motivation. That was the motivation for, you know, what became a career in kind of understanding irrigation of the body and how yeah. vascular systems work just like um, water ducts and irrigation systems. Blood flow is the same as fluid flow in large systems as well. So um, over time, this just, uh, you know, it's, it sounds like a, a torturous route, but eventually got me to vascular biology here at Yale, where now I investigate uh, microvasculature specifically and try to understand how it plays a role in both health and disease of organs like the brain, the skin, and the lungs. Very cool. Uh-huh. That's a really interesting path, uh, not usually one we hear about when we're talking to scientists, honestly. <laughs> not really, no. Um, so before we get too into the specifics of what you're doing, the focus topic for our most recent issue is medical technologies, and this is a little bit of a vague term. Uh, so we were admi- wondering how you might define that term and uh, potentially how your work fits into medical technologies. Yeah, I think, um, as you say, uh, it's a broad term. And the way I think of um, medical technologies, it can be anything from a biomedical device, uh, something that you would see in the hospital. Um, but also, as we've emerged as a, um, you know, as a field of biomedical engineering has emerged, and we've emerged as a um, uh, society in the health field, I think even um, drug screening technologies, so the ability to um, develop small molecule screening tools are technologies in and of themselves. Um, I, I think it, it can it can be anything from something that you would use in the clinic to treat somebody to something that can be used to help discover new therapies. 
Yeah, so let's, let's, we can move a little bit now into the specifics of what your lab works on. And uh, so you focus on the extracellular matrix and uh, various basement membranes that surround tissues that are formed from the proteins that comprise the extracellular matrix. And these are integrins and such. Yeah. And so before we go into how you apply uh, the, the biomedical engineering uh, aspect of your work and in, in, in how, that, how that's associated with the extracellular matrix, can you maybe tell our listeners what, that, what the extracellular matrix is Absolutely. in more detail? Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to think about because it's really the environment or in our body, the microenvironment that is non-cellular that sends signals to our cells. And uh, it sends signals to our cells through um, those receptors that you mentioned, things called integrins. And the way, you know, when I teach it as an introductory level, at an introductory level, I talk about it as any signal that you get from the, your environment. And that can be, is it hot? Oh, I'm going to take, I'm going to put a swimsuit on and jump in a pool. Is it cold? I'm going to put a uh, jacket on. If I hear Beyonce, I don't jump in bed and fall asleep. Mm. I get up and move around the room. So this, the extracellular matrix to the cells is very similar to the environmental um, signals you get from the things that happen around you. And in the context of thinking about <clears throat> how our cells respond in health and disease, those signals in our healthy tissues, especially our um, soft elastic organs are soft signals and they tell the cell settle here you're supposed to be a vascular cell mm. settle here you're okay as a fibroblast developing more tissue but those can go awry if they settle on a tissue that's too hard that they're not used to um, something of that stiffness it can trigger a signal um, a pathway which we call a mechanosensing pathway um, that can tell it this is a disease state there's something's gone, gone wrong here so what's a What's a very um, prevalent medical condition that would happen if the extracellular matrix is somehow defective? Yeah. So the the most um, you know clear example is scar formation in the skin. If we think about mm. just scar formation, that's an extracellular matrix that's much more stiff than the natural pliable human tissue. But the um, absolute extreme is something like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. In idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, our lungs become mechanically stiffened. And studies over the years have shown us that it's not really the cells themselves that are contracting or mechanically um, causing the lung to be stiff, but it's the extracellular matrix that's been remodeled in order to make the tissue now very stiff and much harder than um, a healthy lung would be. Your lab actually, and you in particular, authored a review on, on this subject as well as what your lab is in particular working on, artificial uh, biomaterials that mimic the extracellular matrix. So maybe yeah, so, you so can try that, to describe some of that. Yeah, that's um, for me, that's a really uh, exciting topic. I think that's why I spend so much time writing reviews, reading reviews, and thinking about it, is that um, in a lot of the uh, human diseases that uh, in which we have fibrosis, whether it's scarring, if something as simple as a, a small scar on your skin, or something as uh, detrimental as uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, we have um, animal models, but they don't really adequately mimic what happens in the human. And and that's primarily because uh, murine models, mouse models, don't have the same inflammatory nor fibrotic cascades that mm. humans do. So much of my research has been about taking um, bioengineered materials, which are something that we can build in the lab. They can be completely synthetic, so all carbon-based um, polymer chains or metals or ceramics, and figuring out how to make those look like a human tissue. 
And in that way, we can start to employ the use of isolated human cells in those contexts to figure out how these cells would respond to a healthy tissue or a mechanically rigid tissue, for example. So really, taking advantage of what we understand about tissues in their healthy and their disease state, we mimic those aspects, whether it's stiffness, chemistry, even as far as the architecture, so how many pores, the size of the pores in a, in a particular tissue, um, and really get an, a sense of how human cells are going to interact with um, biomimetic tissues. Um, so it sounds like a lot of these things that you're describing are mostly things that would be used to improve the research on this rather than things that would directly be used in the clinic to maybe help with scar formation or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. <laughs> yes, that's, yes that's yeah. a, it's a mouthful. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the really cool thing um, about the, the way I think I think about this um, aspect, not that the way I think about it is very cool, but um, I, I think that we can use these tools that are very biomimetic and start to understand the pathology, how the, the basic science of, of um, disease and disease states, disease progression and disease states. But then, because there are so many therapies that are only partially effective, so far ineffective, or maybe more effective if they were targeted, it gives us the ability to start to investigate cell, human cell responses to therapies that are either in the clinic being fast-tracked for clinical trials or have the potential to be in the clinic. So we don't think of them um, as translational for transplant, for example, mm-hmm. at this stage, but we do think of, of them as clinically translatable or translational because we're using clinical therapies, drugs, uh, in order to figure out whether how our cells are responding to, um, to, to the current uh, and hopefully future therapies. Very cool. And I don't, I don't mean to at all suggest that the fact that it's not directly going into a person makes it not as good. I do basic science, and so I'm thinking, oh, that sounds like that could be really useful. Even like I, I study pathogens and how they're spreading. Oh, yeah. So even maybe to make, like, make a better tissue to study how pathogens are spreading through them. I think John also studies pathogen spread. Oh, yeah. In retrovirology, we, you know, the field uses fake uh, you know, collagen gels exactly. in order yeah. to somewhat simulate the um, the environment of like a lymph node, or you know the 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 type of environment that the, the that would better mimic the physiological state that the T cell in this particular, if it's HIV research, would be would be in residing in, and I don't want to get the name wrong, but I think it's called Matrigel is the one that everyone uses. I don't know. Exactly. If, so so is what is what you do similar to the gels yes, that people have been exactly using for. The- studying cell-to-cell transfer of of retroviruses for the last 10 years? Yeah. So what we've come to understand about um, collagen gels themselves um, and Matrigel is that, um, one, lot-to-lot differences in the biochemistry because they come from either bovine or um, uh, other uh, than human um, sources. They they aren't uh, necessarily replicative of what we have in, in the human body. So matrigel is great because it's a basement membrane, so it's rich in collagen four, for example. Okay, so it does actually it does contain have, exactly the protein itself. Exactly. Okay. So it has a protein, but if you've ever um, used it, you know that it doesn't crosslink as you would imagine your your own and form a solid the way your own tissue you if you've ever seen histology or image of your own tissue. And collagen gels are the same thing. You can form a solid or kind of like a gel-like block, but unless you up the concentration of the collagen, you can't get a stiffer solid. 
So that means that the change in the bi- the chemistry, so the amount mm-hmm. of the biochemistry of, of collagen, collagen concentration, controls the mechanics. And in the mechanics, you could also imagine it, it controls the fiber density, the fiber um, uh, diameter, the pore size. And what we try to do is figure out what a human tissue looks like, and then we try to replicate that human tissue, and then we de- decouple some of those aspects. So we can decouple the pore size, for example, that it, and evaluate T cell migration through a pore that is of the same size, but mm. on a soft tissue or a stiff tissue and say, oh, you know what, T cells are much happier migrating through a three micron pore if the tissue is stiff because their integrins can grab onto that's it. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yes, that's mm. exactly, yes. So that those kind of ideas allow us to play a little bit more with the biophysics of cellular interactions with the extracellular matrix than, um, than we've been traditionally able to do with collagen by itself or matrigel. That's, that's a, I think that's a really great place that we can, we can explore here. So you can talk a little bit more about how your lab studies the biophysics and how and how that can be translated back into the into the into the physiology the physiology of the of the of the patient. Like so, it might not. So if the biophysics is the, is similar, I guess I'm trying to say is that, that a good is that a good metric for that your artificial EMC to be uh, applicable and appropriate? That's a really good question because it would be in some conditions in which cells are very sensitive to the matrix, to the, the effects of the extracellular matrix, whether those are stiffening or, um, you know, the other things that we can think about that uh, are, um, you know, controlled by the matrix, it are cytokine and chemokine sinks. So how, many, how much VEGF, for example, gets mm. absorbed into a matrix. Um, it could also be, um, as I said, any of those uh, kind of architectural parameters. Uh, but one, in one case, the disease, um, the, and I always go back to IPF because it's such a drastic change in the stiffness, and that's something that people can kind of appreciate is that stiffness of a tissue that's supposed to be soft could, cause, could, could obviously lead to dysfunction of the overall ability of the, the organ to do its job. But cells on that level use their integrins to bind to the extracellular matrix proteins, and because those matrix proteins are now stiffly cross-linked or tightly cross-linked to one another, the cell can't pull that matrix protein in order to migrate or sense the environment as well. When it pulls on that and it's much more rigid, what we think is happening is that the um, uh, vinculin, focal adhesion kinases, focal adhesion proteins are being um, aggregated to the surface of that membrane, the internal surface of the membrane, and accumulating actin cytoskeletal um, proteins that yeah. then cause biophysical forces on the cells. The accumulation of something like um, alpha SMA, which is alpha um, smooth muscle actin, is a marker for myofibroblast transition of epithelial cells, endothelial cells, fibroblasts, and now we think microvascular pericytes. And if that happens, then we use those cells and we can trace those cells in the human lung tissue and say, this human lung lesion is enriched in myofibroblasts. This person truly does have, instead of you know some other disease, and a fibrotic lesion forming, and we can start to think about ways to then either transdifferentiate those cells, reverse them back to their original phenotype, or target them to become matrix remodeling cells in a more degenerative and healthy way. Do you have a nice experimental platform where you can like test this, like whether certain uh, uh, attributes of the of the more complex biological uh, system are sufficient to cause the phenotypes or 
clinical manifestations that you care about. Like the presence of this or the presence of of A or the presence of B and the amount of um, mechanical stress being pushed here instead of here. Instead of so you you have a nice system where you can tweak you know, certain things to find sufficiency. Yes, that's exactly. And that exactly. way you can, like, simplify a very complicated picture is kind of how I'm seeing this. Yeah, that's that's the way I, I you know, I try to see, see it too, is right. that um, we have the ability to manipulate and control one unit while keeping another unit constant or one um, factor while keeping another um, factor constant, where in human systems that are so complex, we don't have that ability. So the closer we, um, so again, it, it becomes a, uh, we want to mimic the tissue, and mm-hmm. then we want to tighter one factor up or tighter it down. We want to kind of manipulate in order to see how the cells are going to respond to those um, those factors. And that gives us better a better sense of what we could target in the body, which direction we want the cell response to go if we see changes in receptor levels or, or in any downstream signals that we could uh, uh, potentially yeah. exploit for therapies. So speaking of therapies, uh, you guys recently tested a new drug candidate for uh, fibrotic damage, uh, such as in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Um, So could you walk us through that research maybe and talk about how that was related to or an outgrowth of this matrix development? Yeah. um, So I uh, have a collaborator who is in pulmonary medicine and one of the, um, you know, real leaders in the world on um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and is... you know, one of the things that uh, as you grow in science and you collaborate with people, you get very excited by people who are sincerely excited by the, by by a story, whether it's a disease, the patients they treat, or um, the basic research themselves. And Erica Herzog is extremely dedicated to her patients who are experiencing idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And so when she talked to me about uh, the disease and, and you know, the very limited therapies that are available, their, um, you know, relative ineffectiveness in large populations, academy thinking, could we build a model that would allow us to trial some of these therapies and get a little bit more information, one, on how the disease happens, it's idiopathic, so we don't know yeah, the pathology, yeah. <laughs> and um, then use some of the information um, from understanding the what the drivers of this disease to uh, select therapies that might be helpful to the patient. And so with this um, platform, as, as I've uh, kind of uh, alluded to early on, one of the things we could do was, is take human um, lung tissue and we can build a mimetic of uh, the idiopathic pulmonary condition. And by taking a healthy lung sample and conjugating it to a polymer, you can make it um, stiff. We can get the stiffness that mimics the, um, that, the stiffness of the IPF. Patient. We could also take biopsies from IPF patients and conjugate it to a soft and healthy um, uh, level of uh, elasticity um, in a polymer system. And so that allows us to decouple the effects of the extracellular matrix co- composition from the mechanics itself. And so we were able to try um, to culture human cells on these scaffolds and determine which factors were most uh, important in driving the cells to progression of disease. And what we found was the cells are extremely responsive to stiffness. And so stiffness for these cells, vascular cells, happens to be an important driver for um, increase of that alpha smooth muscle actin, which is the marker for myofibroblastness. We also saw that these cells, when triggered with a 
transforming growth factor beta, TGF beta mm -hmm. one, uh, could remodel their own extracellular matrix and make it stiff. So then we started to trial a few of the therapies that have been considered for conditional use in, in human populations when people have, are presenting with IPF. And we threw those into our system. And what we found was that we could get those cells, if they're on a stiffened lung tissue, to express MMPs, matrix metalloproteinases, which are enzymes that then chew up that already stiffened and um, uh, uh, now fibrotic matrix. And so it was one of the first times people have ever used vascular cells in the context of a human extracellular matrix lung disease um, to figure out both the mechanism driving these cells, expression of alpha-SMA, the ability of these cells to then transform their environment to look like a fibrotic tissue, and then trial some therapies, some uh, uh, clinical drugs uh, to evaluate the efficacy in being able to reverse, we hope, the disease state. Were you able to somehow control the, act, the, the activity of the MMPs? Uh, because so that's, I, I'm yeah. thinking of a possible de uh, deleterious side effect of, a, but I'm I'm guessing since the patient already has serious fibrotic, uh, it's like in a serious fibrotic condition or it's already damaged. Yeah. Like I'm just so could it go so far that we chew up all the lung, for example, or make the lung super I'm, soft? Yeah, I'm yes, just wondering I if there was something. So we're working on that problem next. Yeah. So is there a way that we then dampen the response? Is there um, a switch where the cell is uh, now sensitive? Mm -hmm. In the so to the, the, the elastic aspect of, of the matrix. And so will it stop producing the MMPs? Will it now produce more collagen? Oh, cool. so, w when, so that's what we're currently investigating, is when does the signal you know, stop itself? Does it stop itself? Do we need to pull, you know, add something new? Do we need to pull something out? Yeah, not, not, to, not to go down this road too far, but I'm actually really curious as what's, what's the natural uh, stimulus, like the signaling uh, stimuli for... Uh, a cell to uh, secrete MMPs. Like, is this a natural uh, uh, process that happens often? Yes. Okay. So our bodies are constantly remodeling the extracellular right, matrix, yeah. right? So that means there's a balance between the deposition of matrix proteins and the secretion of enzymes. Mm -hmm. What we don't know really is what is what throws that balance off. We have conditions in which there's an excess of MMPs that are enzymatically degrading the environment, and then we also can have you know um, a, a loosening of our skin so that it's no longer as stiff and right. tight as it needs to be to have um, uh, uh, security, to be a secure barrier against the environment. Uh, and it can go the other way, which is fibrosis. So there's mm -hmm. an abundance of matrix deposition. Those balances, we still don't know enough about whether they're, uh, you know, w which cells are, are they macrophages that are secreting things like TGF beta or other factors that always keep us in balance and in check? Or, you know, are there other cells? Is it the, the receiving matrix depositing and enzyme producing cell that's really the regulator? We don't know. And I think that's a, a really important question. Yeah, that's what you yeah. should write your grants for. <laughs> <laughs> when you do the, yeah. <laughs> when you're doing the basic science for this. No, that's a great. That's, that, that's, that's, that's really interesting to me, really, because if I think back to some of the things that I've, I've been doing lately where – a lot of um, pa patients that have chronic HIV infection have serious fibrotic damage and secondary lymphoid tissues. It's one of the reasons why they lose a lot of CD4 T cells. Um, and 
I'm just I'm just wondering if something like this was ever tried as a treatment for trying to trying to reverse some of that damage in these in patients like that. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not sure in yeah. HIV, but I I think there's a growing appreciation that a lot of the signals or you know tissue modification that happens in fibrosis occurs in other disease states, and that would include um, uh, cancer, for example. Yeah. What we know about uh, secondary metastatic sites in in um, breast to lung cancer, for example, is that you do get a fibrotic area that becomes the site for secondary um, tumor seeding oh, or metastasis. So what is it about that environment? Is it that there are pro-inflammatory signals in right. the vascular bed mm-hmm. that have, you know, have sensed this matrix remodeling? Is, it, is there an early recruitment of, of inflammatory cells in that space that have remodeled the environment to make it fibrotic? We don't completely understand the coincidence uh, um, between these kind of matrix remodeling events. And hmm. really, we don't even understand the homeostasis. Like, wh- why, if, if there's this balance between deposition and remodeling all the time, where does it go wrong in order to trigger disease? If we could understand the basis, then maybe we'd have a better chance <laughs> in yeah. understanding driving, uh, drivers of disease. Yeah, you mentioned that some of the drugs you were trying out on this worked on some people, but not everyone. Did you see anything that might suggest why? Like, do they make more MMPs, or does it have to do with where in the lung? Because I'd imagine location probably matters for how stiff it ought to be. Yeah, so we haven't gone that route yet. Um, and that's uh, what we're, we, we'd hope to do with more clinical um, and a remote, uh, more uh, much more robust data set. And I think we can do that with collaborators like pharmaceutical companies, but also with these um, clinical collaborators who have so many patients, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, who are um, dealing uh, with this diagnosis. But um, yeah, I think, I think really now the next steps would be understanding if we can completely resolve the condition mm-hmm. uh, with the with the experimental models that we have, but then also seeing what is the variation in um, you know genotype in these cells that may contribute to a an ability to respond to therapies and and, and maybe not. Well, you you've published on so many other things too, which is something that I that I I'm just curious. How do you focus on? The, the research questions to to investigate with the limited funding that every PI has. So, you know, you work on neutrophil migration. You work on cancer screening. We were just, uh, we were just uh, talking a little bit about, uh, you know, the, 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 the work that you've been doing on IPF. Like, so what, yeah. ha, ha, what really is What's driving which questions for you? Like, what yeah. motivates you? into choosing the questions that you that, 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 that interest you. One part of this that I think uh, maybe I didn't explain so well is that in all of these stories, um, microvasculature specifically is key. So in this uh, um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis story, one of the discoveries was that microvascular mural cells could contribute to the formation of the fibrotic foci in human lung, and, and no one had identified them as a, a true contributor to that foci. In all of our inflammation stories, we're really focused on building models, humanized models of um, microvessels, and that helps us to explore what is it about these uh, the composite structure of endothelial cells with pericytes that leads to recruitment of neutrophils from the blood flow into the interstitial mm. tissue where they experience the extracellular matrix. So, uh, you know, all of them are... Uh, 
really, I think the the unifying factor is I'm interested in these um, small vessels that uh, flow yeah. blood across. Um, and when they do things well, I like to develop models of and understand the healthy blood vessel. But then in inflammation and fibrosis, these things go awry. And they just take, have a mind of their own. And so I'm trying to understand which are the switches that they can control and which they respond to in, in these diseases. This is, this is such a great analogy back to your, your, <laughs> irrigation. Your, father, your irrigation <laughs> yes. and your father's profession. No, I think that's marvelous. Um, so we, we asked this uh, to everyone that we talk to. And uh, do you have any practical advice to graduate students, uh, some that might be interested in joining your lab one day? Even postdoctoral researchers are having a bad week. Like, what <laughs> practical, <laughs> what practical yeah. advice would you tell uh, people who are aspiring to try to have a career in different types of research science? Or maybe even younger than graduate students. Even younger than graduate students, like the undergrads. Well, one thing I would tell anybody, and, and I do tell everybody this, is that a scientific mind can come from anywhere. Uh, my mother was a blackjack dealer, and she told taught me oh, how to do. That's so cool. <laughs> and she taught me probabilities when I was eight. Yes. Eight, right. Yes. Uh, so how likely is it that you're going to hit blackjack? <laughs> not very likely, right? And you play with one deck, not right. with five exactly. shuffled exactly. in. Exactly. Yeah. And so I learned early on um, that a mathematical mind. Uh, she also was a seamstress, so the mechanics of putting, um, you know pieces of clothing together to get a beautiful dress at the end. Yeah. Um, and then my grandfather didn't even have an, an elementary school education. So it's not that you have to have in your mind, I'm going to be a great scientist from birth or anything like that. It has. To, it's a willingness to do something uh, and take chances on attempting something that may not succeed. I think, yeah. I think mm-hmm. it's using all of your experiences, even those that don't seem to be scientific, that don't seem to be to be long at Yale, and applying them to to a goal that you have. And if you can do that, then you you're advancing. You're advancing yourself because you're moving another day forward in your PhD candidacy or towards your job, um, but you're also advancing science because you're putting a new idea just from your whole mixed up experience into science. And so I, that, that's one thing I tell everybody. And I think that's um, maybe an underappreciated way to think yeah. about our contribution to science. Don't completely, don't completely change because science oh, needs no. a diversity. No, yeah. 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 And diversity can be such a charged word, right? So it must mean, oh, I'm promoting diversity because I'm a Latina, black woman <laughs> in oh, a male-dominated no. field. I think diversity is any diversity of thought, right? Diversity of experience put into Precisely, this question yeah. of T-cell migration or T-cell influence on HIV, HIV progression, right? It, it can be any experience that someone else did not add to this question before. Mm-hmm. And so that's the one thing that it keeps me energized because I can watch SpongeBob with my <laughs> eight-year-old <laughs> and I bet you I can come up with, a, you know, a, a something that would help my, me explain something in the classroom or, yeah. you know, <laughs> or move our science forward. Yeah, because one, one of Squidward's wisecracks will give you inspiration. Exactly. So, I, I you know, it's, it's often to me um, – really exciting to be able to talk to people who don't see themselves as uh, scientists or don't see themselves mm-hmm. as, as engineers and convert them 
that science belongs to all of us because we all do it in some way and we all contribute it to it in some way, whether it's, again, teaching your daughter how to sew or teaching her how to count cards <laughs> or yeah, whatever no. it is that my mother was doing um, or teaching me about irrigation because I was out there in the summer with my grandfather. I think that's super important. Um, I mean, I know when I started my PhD and started thinking about what do I want to work on for the next five years, um, I noticed that there was this big gap in the literature that nobody else seemed to really notice. And so I guess that was the a diversity of me coming into it with the fresh ideas and not really thinking about, oh, this is the way that this works and wondering, wait a second, how, how does that actually, uh, how does this pathogen actually spread? Exactly. It's just, you know, sometimes in, uh, with students, they read texts, they read primary papers, and they think everything is solved. We have the answers to everything. There's no space for me anymore. And that's exactly not the case. These papers and these texts should be teaching you what the, you know, maybe basic principles are that you're supposed to move forward and you're supposed to challenge, or you're supposed to fill in the gaps because we know far from everything. Yeah, when that paradigm shifts in graduate school, that's when you have your great graduate school panic attack. Yes. When you do it. <laughs> That's when you have your like it's this, this 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 Socratic moment when you're like we know so much about how little we know, and you and yeah and I, I when I was um, when I was a former community college adjunct and and I I would have students approach me all the time and they would say, hey Mr V, I'm so sorry that I'm gonna fail your class so just don't like I'm just letting you know. I'm I'm not very smart, so blah blah blah, and I'd be like, "Where are you coming up with this?" Yeah. Like, I'm I'm sure that if I was in your world in some way or another, you're completely adapted to it, and you're extremely efficient in living in it. I'm giving you literally uh, a different language, and if I had expectations for you within like a week to be able to completely translate this, then mm-hmm. I'm an idiot, yes. not you. <laughs> You know, I've, I was like, you guys got to stop that. And I, I, I think that's yeah. kind of synonymous with what you were saying, right? Where it's like, don't believe you have to completely transform and metamorphosize into some butterfly in order to succeed. No. Right? Mm-hmm. You're saying you can easily succeed with, who, with, with the character traits of who you are. Yes, where you are. And there are some very basic tools that you, could, you can acquire and then, you know, you, and then you can – improve with practice and you know, like certain ways of thinking, the scientific method and the idea of um, experimental design and statistical analysis, these are things, and you can learn how to get better at these things. So you, and for me, it's like you got to learn how to code really right. quickly if I'm going to get a job. <laughs> I got to start getting on Python. As, you know, so I understand that, that you, know, you can get into uh, you know, this, this notion, you can get into this trap where you're like, I am obviously not like this individual over there with his eight nature papers and his computational oh, yeah. mind or you know and and but the thing is is that that person can't do such so many things that you you could you yes. know you just have to realize that this it's like the simplest thing right yeah but it's hard you know we always you know we're always competing and i think we're taught that you know early on that uh 
there's only you know one person who can be the best and oh yeah and you know LeBron James doesn't play by himself <laughs> so yeah. you know he he's pretty good but he doesn't we play alone. We forget about our Nash equilibrium. So it's yes. like everyone can win in the right setting. <laughs> and that's what science really should be, right? Is yeah. that everyone wins as we all move forward? And uh, you know I think we're in such a collaborative field now that we are you know time and area that we can't um, you know be head to head with people all the time. We've got to figure out what we bring to the table and what other people bring to the table to move the whole whole system forward. Hmm. And I'm just interested in like what, what, what you're reading right now. Like what, 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 like if there's uh, a book or two on your bookshelf that you were interested in reading or you have been reading and something that you can maybe re- uh, recommend to, to our listeners that might not even just get them into the glories of the extracellular matrix, but perhaps into just like pop, like something that fascinates you that you can that well, you can I'm reading Harry them. Potter right now because That's my fine. kids just turned eight and they are really excited about the is whole. Is this the first time this you're reading fir- it? Yes, I'm, I did not read it. I, That's fascinating. Yeah, so I'd love I, to hear. I'm like, coming late to the game. I understand. No, but this is a, you're going to have a completely different perspective <laughs> on this. You know. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I feel like your re- your listeners could probably teach me a thing or two about what to to read. Maybe. Um, but around the Matrix. Um, there's actually a, a like a burgeoning field of people who are really interested in uh, this topic, and so there are journals now mm-hmm. dedicated to the Matrix. Um, I read them, you know, professionally, but um, they're not as entertaining reading yet as uh, Harry Potter has been. And then the other thing I'm reading uh, in my own private, probably closeted time is the uh, um, Fear. Uh, the Woodward book um, oh, about Donald Trump. About Donald Trump. <laughs> yes, I probably should not admit that publicly. That I why not? It's a bestseller. Yeah, I'm sure everyone is interested uh, in what's be, in it. Yeah, hiding in their closet. <laughs> I just can't believe that he got so much access. People knew what he was going to write about. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. So it's their own fault if they said something damaging. The, I, Hi, it, I'm it, Bob Woodward. Exactly. I wrote the same book. On every president since what Nixon? Yes. <laughs> so. And it, uh, yeah, so I don't know wh- why they would agree to it, but uh, they funny. seem to have. <laughs> no, I actually wanted to read it too. So it's a good read. <laughs> okay, you might have to pick it up. And with that, I think it's time to wrap up. Um, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Old Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Join us next month for our next podcast in our series on medical technology. Uh, We want to thank the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. We want to thank our co-editors-in-chief, Helen Byanson and Fatima Mirza, and the rest of the YJBM editorial board. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit yjbm.yale.edu. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com or following our Twitter feed with the handle at the YJBM. And if you would like to contact us, please email us at yjbm at yale.edu. This episode is uh, dedicated to the memory of Phil Kearney, who was a huge asset to us and a great friend to both me and to YJBM, who passed away a short while ago. And we just want to say from the bottom of our hearts that He will be greatly missed. I will say I won't forget him. Neither will I and I'm sure everybody else who has been working on this podcast. And thanks for listening.